Chapter 7 The End The third year of his ministry approached its close, and the revolving seasons brought the great annual feast of the Passover. It is said that as many as two or three million strangers were gathered in Jerusalem on such an occasion. They not only flocked from every part of Israel to celebrate the event in which their national history began, but they came over sea and land from all the countries in which the seed of Abraham was dispersed. They were brought together by very diverse motives. Some came with the solemn thoughts and deep religious joy of minds responsive to the memories of the venerable occasion. Some mainly looked forward to reunion with relatives and friends who had long been parted from them by living in distant places. Not a few of the lower sort brought with them the desire to profit, and were primarily intent on achieving in such a large group some important business success. This year, though, the minds of tens of thousands were full of an unusual excitement, and they traveled to the capital expecting to see something more remarkable than they had ever witnessed before. They hoped to see Jesus at the feast and they entertained many unclear ideas as to what might happen in connection with him. His name was the word that was passed from mouth to mouth most often among the groups of pilgrims that crossed along the highways, and also among the Jewish groups that talked together on the decks of the ships coming from Asia Minor and Egypt. Undoubtedly, nearly all his own disciples were there, ardently cherishing the hope that at last in this assembly of the nation, he would throw off the cloak of humility that concealed his glory, and would demonstrate his messiahship in some undeniable way. There must have been thousands from the southern portions of the country, where he had recently been spending his time, who began to have the same enthusiastic views about him that were entertained in Galilee at the end of his first year there. Undoubtedly, Multitudes of the Galileans themselves were favorably disposed toward him and were ready to take the deepest interest in any new development of his affairs. Tens of thousands from more distant parts who had heard of him but had never seen him arrived in the capital in the hope that he might be there and that they might enjoy the opportunity of seeing a miracle or listening to the words of the new prophet. The authorities in Jerusalem, too, awaited his coming with very mixed feelings. They hoped that some turn of events might give them the chance of at last silencing him. But they could not help fearing that he might appear at the head of a provincial following that would place them at his mercy. The Final Breach with the Nation Six days before Passover began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the village of his friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, which was about thirty minutes from the city on the other side of the summit of the Mount of Olives. It was a convenient place to lodge during the feast, so he stayed with his friends. The ceremonies were to begin on a Thursday, so he arrived there on the previous Friday. He had been accompanied the last twenty miles of his journey by an immense multitude of the pilgrims, to whom he was the center of interest. 
they had seen him healing blind Bartimaeus at Jericho. Mark 10, 46-52. And the miracle had produced extraordinary excitement among them. When they reached Bethany, the village was ringing with the news of the recent resurrection of Lazarus. And they carried on the news to the crowds who had already arrived in Jerusalem that Jesus had come. After resting over the Sabbath in Bethany, Jesus left on Sunday morning to proceed to the city. He found the streets of the village and the neighboring roads thronged with a vast crowd that consisted partly of those who had accompanied him on the previous Friday, partly of other people who were traveling from Jericho and had heard of the miracles as they came along, and partly of those who, having heard that he was at hand, had flocked out from Jerusalem to see him. They welcomed him with enthusiasm, and they began to shout, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Matthew 21, 9. It was a messianic demonstration such as he had previously avoided, but now he yielded to it. He was probably satisfied with the sincerity of the allegiance paid to him, and the hour had come when no consideration could allow him any longer to conceal from the nation the character in which he presented himself and the claim he made on its faith. However, in yielding to the desires of the multitude that he should assume the style of a king, he made it unmistakable in what sense he accepted the honor. He sent for a donkey. His disciples spread their garments on it, and he rode at the head of the crowd. Matthew 21, 1-11 He did not enter Jerusalem armed to the teeth or riding a war horse, but he came as the king of simplicity and peace. The procession swept over the brow of the Mount of Olives and continued down the mountainside. They crossed the Kidron Valley, and, mounting the slope that led to the gate of the city, passed on through the streets to the temple. The crowd swelled as they went, great numbers hurrying from all over to join it. The shouts grew louder and louder. The people broke off twigs from the palms and olives as they passed, waving them in triumph. The citizens of Jerusalem ran to their doors and leaned over their balconies to look, asking, Who is this? The people in the procession replied with provincial pride, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth. Matthew 21, 10-11 It was, in fact, an entirely provincial demonstration. The citizens of Jerusalem took no part in it, but remained coldly distant. The authorities knew only too well what it meant, and they beheld it with rage and dread. They went to Jesus and ordered him to rebuke his followers and command them to be silent, undoubtedly hinting that if he did not do so, the Roman garrison, which was stationed in the immediate vicinity, would pounce on him and them and would punish the city for an act of treason to Caesar. Luke 19, 39-40 there is no point in the life of Jesus at which we are more motivated to ask the following questions. What would have happened if his claim had been acknowledged, if the citizens of Jerusalem had been carried away with the enthusiasm of the others, 
and if the animosity of the priests and scribes had given way before the torrent of public approval. Would Jesus have put himself at the head of the nation and inaugurated an era of the world's history totally different from that which followed? No, he would not have. Jesus knew he was here for one purpose, and nothing could detract him from the Father's will. Romans 5, 19. Jesus had formally offered himself to the capital and to the authorities of the nation, but he was met with no response. The provincial recognition of his claims was insufficient to carry a national assent. He accepted the decision as final. The multitude expected a signal from him, and in their excited mood would have obeyed it, whatever it might have been. He had given them none, though, and after looking around for a little while in the temple, he left them and returned to Bethany. Mark 11, 11. Doubtless, the multitude was very disappointed, and an opportunity was offered to the authorities that they did not fail to make use of. The Pharisees did not need any motivation, but even the Sadducees, those cold and arrogant friends of order, detected danger to the public peace in the state of the popular mind, and they joined themselves with their bitter enemies in their determination to suppress him. On Monday and Tuesday, he appeared again in the city and engaged in his old work of healing and teaching. But on the second day, the authorities interfered. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, high priests, priests, and scribes were united in a common cause for once. They went to Jesus as he taught in the temple and demanded him to tell them by what authority he did what he did. Matthew 21, 23. In all the display of official attire, of social pride, and of popular renown, they set themselves against the simple Galilean, while the multitudes looked on. They entered into a sharp and prolonged dispute with him on points selected beforehand, putting forward their champions of debate to try to entangle him in his talk. Their specific goal was either to discredit him with the people or to bring out something from his lips in the heat of argument that might form a reason to accuse him before the civil authority. So, for example, they asked him if it was lawful to give tribute to Caesar. Mark 12, 13-17 If he answered yes, they knew that his popularity would perish in an instant for it would be a complete contradiction of the popular messianic ideas. If, on the contrary, he answered no, they would accuse him of treason before the Roman governor. Jesus was far more than a match for them, though. Hour by hour, he steadfastly met the attack. His straightforwardness put their duplicity to shame. His skill in argument turned every spear that they directed at him around to their own hearts. At last, he carried the war into their own territory and declared them guilty of such ignorance or lack of honesty that completely put them to shame before the onlookers. Then, after he had silenced them, he let loose the storm of his indignation, 
delivering against them the condemnatory verbal tirade that is recorded in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, giving unrestrained utterance to the pent-up criticism of a lifetime, he exposed their hypocritical practices in sentences that fell like strokes of lightning and made them a scorn and a laughing stock, not only to the hearers then, but to all the world since. It was the final break between him and them. They had been completely humiliated before the whole people over whom they were set in authority and honor. They felt it to be intolerable, and they resolved not to lose an hour in seeking their revenge. That very evening, the Sanhedrin met in an enraged mood to devise a plan to do away with him. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea may have raised a solitary protest against their hurried proceedings, but they were indignantly silenced. The united enemies of Jesus were unanimously of the opinion that he should immediately be put to death. Circumstances hindered their cruel haste. The forms of justice would at least have to be gone through. And besides, Jesus evidently enjoyed an immense popularity among the strangers who filled the city. What might the idle crowd do if he were arrested before their eyes? It was necessary to wait until the large group of pilgrims had left the city. Matthew 26, 3-5 They had just arrived at this conclusion with great reluctance when they received a most unexpected and gratifying surprise. One of Jesus' own disciples appeared and offered to betray him for a price. Judas Iscariot is a byword of the human race. In his vision of hell, Dante Alighieri placed him in the lowest of the circles of the damned, as the sole sharer with Satan himself of the very uttermost punishment. And the poet's verdict is that of mankind. Yet, Judas Iscariot was not such a monster of iniquity as to be utterly beyond comprehension, or even sympathy. The history of his disgraceful and appalling offense is perfectly understandable. He had joined the discipleship of Jesus, as the other apostles did, in the hope of taking part in a political revolution and occupying a distinguished place in an earthly kingdom. It is inconceivable that Jesus would have made him an apostle if there had not been a need for a traitor in the midst of the disciples. Matthew 18.7 and John 6.70 that Judas Iscariot was a man of superior energy and administrative ability can be inferred from the fact that he was made the treasurer of the apostolic group. However, there was corruption, the love of money at the root of his character, that gradually absorbed all that was excellent in him and took over his life. He fed it by the petty theft that he practiced on the small sums that Jesus received from his friends for the necessities of his company and for distribution among the poor with whom he was daily mingling. He hoped to give it unrestrained gratification when he was put in charge of the finances of the new kingdom. The views of the other apostles were perhaps as worldly to begin with as his, but the history of their interaction with their master was totally different. They became ever more spiritual, while Judas Iscariot became increasingly worldly.
the entire time that Jesus was with them, they never understood the idea of a spiritual kingdom apart from an earthly one. But the spiritual aspects that their master had taught them to add to their physical idea grew more and more prominent until the earthly heart was eaten out of it and just the empty shell was left to be in due time crushed and blown away. Judas's earthly views, though, became more and more consuming and were more and more removed from every spiritual aspect. He grew impatient for their realization. Preaching and healing seemed to be a waste of time to him. The purity and unworldliness of Jesus irritated him. Why did he not bring on the kingdom at once and then preach as much as he chose afterward? In time, he began to suspect that there was to be no physical kingdom that he had hoped for. He felt that he had been deceived, and he began not only to despise his master, but even to hate him. The failure of Jesus to take advantage of the disposition of the people on Palm Sunday finally convinced him that it was useless to hold on to the cause any longer. He saw that the ship was sinking, and he was determined to get out of it. Judas Iscariot carried out his resolution in such a way that would gratify his love of money as well as secure the favor of the authorities. His offer came to them just at the right moment. They accepted it greedily, and having arranged the price with the miserable man, they sent him away to find a convenient opportunity for the betrayal. Matthew 26, 14-16 He found it sooner than they expected. Jesus in the Prospect of Death Christianity has no more precious possession than the memory of Jesus during the week when he stood face to face with death. Unspeakably great as he always was, it can be reverently said that he was never so great as during those days of the direst calamity. All that was greatest and tenderest, the most human and the most divine aspects of his character, were brought out as they had never been before. Jesus entered Jerusalem well aware that he was about to die. For a whole year, that fact had been staring him in the face constantly, and that which had been long looked for had come at last. He knew it was his Father's will, and when the hour arrived, he directed his steps with divine courage to the fatal spot. Luke 9:51. It was not, however, without a terrible conflict of feelings. The ebb and flow of the most diverse emotions, anguish and ecstasy, the most prolonged and crushing depression, the most triumphant joy, and the most majestic peace, swayed back and forth within him, like the moods of a vast ocean. Some have been unwilling to attribute to Jesus anything of that hesitation toward death that is natural to man, but that is surely without good reason. It is an instinct perfectly innocent. The very fact that he was pure and perfect may have made it stronger in him than it is in us. Remember how young Jesus was. He was only 33. The currents of life were powerful in him. He was full of the instincts of action. 
To have these strong currents rolled back and the light and warmth of life quenched in the cold waters of death must have been utterly repugnant to him. An incident that took place on the Monday caused him a great shock of this instinctive pain. Some Greeks who had come to the feast expressed through two of the apostles their desire to meet with him. John 12:20 20-22 There were many heathens in different parts of the Greek-speaking world who at this period had found refuge from the atheism and disgusting immorality of the times in the religion of the Jews who had settled in their midst, and they had accordingly become followers of the worship of Jehovah. These inquirers belonged to this group of people. Their request to meet with him shook him with thoughts that they little dreamed of. Only two or three times in the course of his ministry does he seem to have been brought into contact with representatives of the world lying outside the limits of his own people, for his mission was exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15:24. On each of these occasions, though, he was met with a faith, a courtesy, and a nobility that he himself contrasted with the unbelief, rudeness, and pettiness of the Jews. How could he help desiring to pass beyond the narrow bounds of Israel and visit nations of such simple and generous disposition? He might often have seen visions of a career like that later achieved by Paul, who carried the glad tidings from land to land and evangelized Athens. Rome, and the other great centers of the West. What such joy a career would have been to Jesus, who felt within himself the energy and overflowing compassion that would have been exactly appropriate. However, death was at hand to extinguish it all. The visits of the Greeks naturally would have caused a great wave of such thoughts to come over him. Instead of responding to their request, he might have become lost in thought, his face gloomy, and his frame shaken with the tremor of an inward conflict. He also would soon have recovered himself, giving expression to the thoughts on which in those days he was steadying his soul. Scripture Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. John 12:24 And I if I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me John 12:32 Jesus could see beyond death as terrible and absorbing as the prospect of it was and assure himself that the effect of his self-sacrifice would be infinitely grander and more extensive than that of a personal mission to the heathen world could ever have been besides death was what his father had appointed for him this was the last and deepest consolation with which he soothed his humble and trustful soul on this as on every similar occasion scripture now is my soul troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour but for this cause came i unto this hour father Glorify thy name. John 12:27-28. Death approached him with every terrible accompaniment. 
he was to fall victim to the treachery of one of his own followers whom he had chosen and loved. His life was to be taken by the hands of his own nation, in the city of his heart. He had come to exalt his nation to heaven, and had loved her with a devotion nourished by the most intelligent and sympathetic acquaintance with her past history, and with the great men who had loved her before him, as well as by the sense of all that he himself was able to do for her. But his death would bring down the affliction of a thousand curses on Israel and Jerusalem. He showed how clearly he foresaw what was coming by his memorable prophetic discourse in the 24th chapter of Matthew, which he spoke on Tuesday afternoon to his disciples while sitting on the side of the Mount of Olives with the doomed city at his feet. He demonstrated how bitter the anguish was that it caused him when on Sunday, even in his hour of triumph, as the joyful multitude conveyed him down the mountain road, he stopped at the point where the city burst upon the view and predicted its fate with tears and lamentations. Luke 13, 34-35 It should have been the fine city's bridal day, when she should have been married to the Son of God, but the paleness of death was on her face. He who would have taken her to his heart, as the hen gathers her chickens under her wings, saw the eagles already in the air, flying fast to tear her in pieces. During the evenings of this week, he went out to Bethany. In all probability, though, he spent most of the nights alone in the open air. He wandered about in the solitude of the hilltop and among the olive groves and gardens with which the sides of the mount were covered. Many times he likely walked down the same road along which the procession had passed, and as he looked across the valley from the point where he had stopped before, at the city sleeping in the moonlight, startled the night with cries more bitter than the lamentation that rattled the multitude, repeating to his lonely heart the great truths he had uttered in the presence of the Greeks. He was terribly alone. The whole world was against him. Jerusalem thirsted for his life with passionate hate. The tens of thousands from the provinces turned from him in disappointment. Not even his apostles, not even John, was in the least aware of the real situation or was able to be the confidant of his thoughts. This was one of the bitterest drops in his cup. He felt, as no other person has ever felt, the necessity of living on in the world after death. The cause he had inaugurated must not die. It was for the whole world, and it had to endure through all generations and visit every part of the globe. After his departure, though, it would be left in the hands of his apostles, who were now showing themselves so very weak, unsympathetic, and ignorant. Were they ready for the task? Had not one of them turned out to be a traitor? Would not the cause, after he was gone, so the tempter might have whispered, fall apart, and all his far-reaching plans for the regeneration of the world vanish like the feeble substance of a dream? Yet he was not alone. Among the deep shadows of the garden and upon the summits of the Mount of Olives, he sought the unfailing resource of other 
and less troubled days, and he still found it in his dire need. His father was with him, and pouring out supplications with strong crying and tears, he was heard in that he feared. Hebrews 5, 7 He calmed his spirit with a sense that his father's perfect love and wisdom were appointing all that was happening to him, and that he was glorifying his father and fulfilling the work given to him to do. This could banish every fear and fill him with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1, 8 At last, the end drew near. The Thursday evening arrived when the Passover was eaten in every house in Jerusalem. Jesus sat down to eat it with the twelve. He knew that it was his last night on earth and that this was his farewell meeting with his own disciples. Happily, a full account of it has been preserved to us, with which every Christian mind is familiar. Matthew 26, 20-30, Mark 14, 17-25, and Luke 22, 14-23, and John 13. It was the greatest evening of his life. His soul overflowed in indescribable tenderness and dignity. Some shadows, indeed, fell across his spirit in the earlier hours of the evening, but they soon passed. Throughout the scenes of the washing of the disciples' feet, the eating of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, the farewell address, and the great high priestly prayer, the whole glory of his character shone brightly. He completely gave himself up to the gracious impulses of friendship, his love to his own flowing forth without limit. Then, as if he had forgotten all their imperfections, he rejoiced in the anticipation of their future successes and the triumph of his cause. Not a shadow intercepted his view of the face of his father or dimmed the satisfaction with which he looked on his own work that was just about to be completed. It was as if the passion was already past, and the glory of his exultation was already breaking around him. The reaction came very soon. Rising from the table at midnight, they passed through the streets and out of the town by the eastern gate of the city. Crossing the Kidron Valley, they reached a place at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he liked to spend time. This is where the awful and memorable events began. It was the final access of the mood of depression that had been struggling all week with the mood of joy and trust, whose culmination had been reached at the supper table. It was the final onset of temptation from which his life had never been free. However, we fear to analyze the details of the scene. We know that any thoughts of ours must be utterly unable to exhaust its meaning. How above all can we estimate in the slightest degree the main aspect of it? The crushing, scorching pressure of the sin of the world for which he was then atoning. The struggle ended in a complete victory. While the poor disciples were sleeping away the hours of preparation for the crisis that was at hand, Jesus had thoroughly equipped himself for it. He had fought down the last remnants of temptation. The bitterness of death was past, 
and he was able to go through the events that followed with a calmness that nothing could ruffle, and with a majesty that converted his trial and crucifixion into the pride and glory of humanity. The Trial Jesus had overcome in this struggle when, through the branches of the olive trees, he saw a group of his enemies moving in the moonlight down the opposite slope, coming to arrest him. The traitor was at their head. He was well acquainted with where his master spent his time, and he probably hoped to find him there asleep. For this reason, he had chosen the midnight hour for his dark deed. It satisfied his employers well, too, for they were afraid to lay hands on Jesus in the daytime, fearing the anger of the Galilean strangers who filled the city. However, they knew how it would demoralize his friends if, conducting his trial during the night, they could present him in the morning, after the people awoke, already a condemned criminal in the hands of the executioners of the law. They had brought lanterns and torches with them, thinking they might find their victim crouching in some cave, or supposing that they might have to pursue him through the woods. But he came forth to meet them at the entrance to the garden, and they trembled like cowards before his majestic looks and devastating words. He freely surrendered himself into their hands, and they led him back to the city. It was probably about midnight. The remaining hours of the night and the early hours of the morning were occupied with the legal proceedings that had to be gone through before they could gratify their thirst for his life. Matthew 26, 47-56 There were two trials, an ecclesiastical one and a civil one, in each of which there were three stages. The first took place before Annas, then before Caiaphas, and an informal committee of the Sanhedrin, and lastly, before a regular meeting of this court. The second took place first before Pilate, then before Herod, and lastly, before Pilate again. The reason for this double legal process was the political situation of the country. Judea, as has already been explained, was directly subject to the Roman Empire. It formed a part of the province of Syria and was governed by a Roman officer who resided at Caesarea. It was not the practice of Rome to strip those countries that she had subdued of all the forms of native government. Though she ruled with an iron hand, collected her taxes with severity, swiftly suppressed every sign of rebellion, and asserted her preeminent authority on great occasions, yet she conceded to the conquered as many symbols as possible of their ancient power. Rome was especially tolerant in matters of religion. Thus, the Sanhedrin, the supreme ecclesiastical court of the Jews, was still permitted to try all religious causes. If the sentence passed was a capital one, though, its execution could not take place without the case being tried over again before the governor. So when a prisoner was convicted by the Jewish ecclesiastical tribunal of a capital crime, he had to be sent down to Caesarea and prosecuted before the civil court, unless the governor happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. 
The crime of which Jesus was accused was one that naturally came before the ecclesiastical court. This court passed a death sentence on him, but it did not have the power to carry it out. It had to hand him on to the tribunal of the governor, who at that time happened to be in the capital, which he generally visited during the Passover. Jesus was taken first to the palace of Annas. John 18.13 Annas was an old man of 70 who had been high priest many years earlier. He still retained the title, as did also five of his sons who had succeeded him, though his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the actual high priest. His age, ability, and family influence gave him immense social weight, and he was the virtual, though not formal, head of the Sanhedrin. He did not try Jesus, but just wanted to see him and ask a few questions. Jesus was then very soon led away from the palace of Annas to that of Caiaphas, which probably formed part of the same group of official buildings. John 18, 24. Caiaphas, as the ruling high priest, was president of the Sanhedrin, before which Jesus was tried. A legal meeting of this court could not be held before sunrise, so it must have been about six o'clock. Many of its members were already on the spot, for they had been drawn together by their interest in the case. They were eager to get to work, both to gratify their own dislike for him and also to prevent the interference of the general public with their proceedings. Accordingly, they resolved to hold an informal meeting at once, at which the accusation, evidence, and so forth might be made ready, so that when the legal hour for opening their doors arrived, there could be nothing to do but to repeat the necessary formalities and carry him off to the governor. This was done, and while Jerusalem slept, these eager judges hurried forward their dark designs. They did not begin, as might have been expected, with a clear statement of the crime with which he was charged. Indeed, it would have been difficult for them to do so, for they were divided among themselves. Many things in his life that the Pharisees regarded as criminal were treated by the Sadducees with indifference. Other acts of his, like cleansing of the temple, had enraged the Sadducees, but had pleased the Pharisees. The high priest began by questioning Jesus as to his disciples and doctrine, evidently with the view of learning whether he had taught any revolutionary beliefs that could lead to any reason to accuse him before the governor. Jesus repelled the insinuation, indignantly asserting that he had always spoken openly before the world, and that he demanded a statement and proof of any evil he had done. This unusual reply induced one of the officials of the court to strike Jesus on the mouth with his fist, an act that the court apparently did not rebuke. That showed what amount of justice he could expect at the hands of the judges. John 18, 19-23 An attempt was then made to bring proof against him. A number of witnesses repeated various statements they had heard him make, out of which it was hoped an accusation might be constructed but it turned out to be a total failure. The witnesses could not agree among themselves. 
and when two were finally able to unite in a distorted report of a saying of his early ministry, which appeared to have some color of criminality, it turned out to be something so insignificant that it would have been absurd to present it to the governor as the basis of a serious charge. They were resolved on his death, but the prey seemed to be slipping out of their hands. Jesus looked on in absolute silence, while contradictory statements of the witnesses demolished each other. He quietly took his natural position far above his judges, and they felt it. At last, the president, in a moment of rage and irritation, commanded him to speak. Why was he so loud and harsh? The humiliating spectacle going on in the witness stand and the silent dignity of Jesus were beginning to trouble even the consciences that had assembled in the dead of night. The case had completely broken down when Caiaphas rose from his seat and, with theatrical solemnity, said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 26, 63. It was a statement given simply to try to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Yet he who had kept silent when he could have spoken, now spoke when he could have been silent. With great solemnity he answered in the affirmative, that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. Nothing more was needed by his judges. They unanimously pronounced him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. The whole trial had been conducted with improper haste and total disregard of the formalities proper to a court of law. Everything was dictated by the desire to arrive at guilt, not justice. The same people were both prosecutors and judges. No witnesses for the defense were considered. Although the judges were undoubtedly perfectly conscientious in their sentence, it was the decision of minds long ago shut against the truth and possessed with the most bitter and revengeful passions. The trial was now looked upon as past, the legal proceedings after sunrise being a mere formality that would only require a few minutes. Accordingly, Jesus was given up as a condemned man to the cruelty of the jailers and the mob. Then a scene ensued over which one would gladly draw a veil. They broke forth on him a brutality of abuse that makes the blood run cold. Apparently, the members of the Sanhedrin themselves took part in it. This man, who had baffled them, impaired their authority, and exposed their hypocrisy, was very hateful to them. Sadducean coldness could boil up into strong heat when it was really aroused. Pharisaic fanaticism was inventive in its cruelty. They smote him with their fists, they spat on him, they blindfolded him, and in derision of his prophetic claims, they told him to prophesy who struck him as they took their turn hitting him. But we will not dwell on a scene so disgraceful to human nature. Matthew 27, 27 to 31, and Luke 22, 63 to 65. It was probably between six and seven in the morning when they took Jesus, bound with chains, to the residence of the governor. What a spectacle that was! The priests, teachers, and judges of the Jewish nation were leading their Messiah to ask the Gentiles to put him to death. It was the hour of the nation's suicide. 
This was all that had come of God's choosing them, bearing them on eagles' wings, Exodus 19.4, and carrying them all the days of old, sending them his prophets and deliverers, Jeremiah 7.25-26, redeeming them from Egypt and Babylon, and causing his glory to pass before their eyes for so many centuries. Surely it was the very mockery of providence, yet God was not mocked. His plans marched down through history with resistless advancement, not waiting on the will of man. Even at this tragic hour, when the Jewish nation was turning his proceedings into ridicule, he was destined to demonstrate the depths of his wisdom and love. The man before whose judgment seat Jesus was about to appear was Pontius Pilate, who had been governor of Judea for six years. He was a typical Roman, not of the ancient simple breed, but of the imperial period. He was a man who had some remains of the ancient Rome justice in his soul, yet was pleasure-loving, overbearing, and corrupt. He hated the Jews whom he ruled, and in times of irritation, freely shed their blood. They gratefully returned his hatred, accusing him of every crime, corruption, cruelty, and robbery. He visited Jerusalem as seldom as possible, for to someone accustomed to the pleasures of Rome with its theaters, baths, games, and pleasure-loving society, Jerusalem with its religiousness and ever-simmering revolt was a dreary residence. When he did visit it, he stayed in the magnificent palace of Herod the Great, as it was usual for the officers sent by Rome into conquered countries to occupy the palaces of the displaced sovereigns. The members of the Sanhedrin and the crowd that had joined the procession as it moved on through the streets led Jesus up the broad route that led through a fine park laid out with walks, ponds, and trees of various kinds. Jesus was taken to the front of the building. The court was held in the open air on a mosaic pavement in front of that part of the palace that united its two colossal wings. The Jewish authorities had hoped that Pilate would accept their decision as his own and would pass the sentence they desired without going into the merits of the case. This was frequently done by provincial governors, especially in matters of religion, which as foreigners they could not be expected to understand. Therefore, when Pilate asked what the crime of Jesus was, they replied, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. John 18.30 However, Pilate was not in the mood of concession, and he told them that if he was not to try the criminal, they must be content with such a punishment as their own law permitted them to inflict. He seems to have known something of Jesus. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. Matthew 27, 18. The triumphal procession of Sunday was sure to have been reported to him, and the neglect of Jesus to make use of that demonstration for any political purpose might have convinced Pilate that Jesus was politically harmless. His wife's dream implied that Jesus had been the subject of conversation in the palace. Matthew 27, 19. And it might have been that the polite man of the world and his lady had felt the boredom of their visit to Jerusalem relieved 
by the story of the young peasant enthusiast who was boldly opposing the fanatical priests. Forced against their desire to bring forward formal charges, the Jewish authorities poured out a volley of accusations, out of which these three clearly emerged. 1. He had misled the nation. 2. He forbade people to pay the Roman tax. And 3. He set himself up as a king. Luke 23, 1-2. They had condemned him for blasphemy in the Sanhedrin, but such an accusation would have been dealt with by Pilate, as they well knew, in the same way as it was later treated by the Roman governor Gallio, when used against Paul by the Jews of Corinth. Acts 18, 14-16 Therefore, they had to invent new charges that might depict Jesus as dangerous to the government. It is mortifying to think that in doing so, they resorted not only to obvious hypocrisy, but even to deliberate falsehood. For how else can we characterize the second accusation when we remember the answer he gave to their question on the same subject on the previous Tuesday? Luke 20, 22-25 Pilate understood their pretended zeal for the Roman authority. He knew the value of this angry concern that Rome's tax should be paid. Rising from his seat to escape the fanatical cries of the mob, Pilate took Jesus inside the palace to examine him. It was a solemn moment for him, although he did not know it. What a terrible fate it was that brought Pilate to this spot at this time. There were hundreds of Roman officials scattered throughout the empire who were conducting their lives on the same principles as his was guided by. Why did it fall to him to bring them to bear on this case? He had no idea of the issues he was deciding. The criminal may have seemed to him a little more interesting and perplexing than others, but Jesus was only one of hundreds who were constantly passing through his hands. It could not have occurred to him that even though he appeared to be the judge, both he and the system he represented were on their trial before one whose perfection judged, and exposed every man and every system that approached him. Pilate questioned Jesus in regard to the accusations brought against him, asking especially if he pretended to be a king. Jesus replied that he made no such claim in the political sense, but only in a spiritual sense, as king of the truth. John 18, 38 this reply would have grabbed the attention of any of the nobler spirits of heathendom who spent their lives in the search for truth, and it might have been stated in such a way as to find out whether there was any response in Pilate's mind to such a suggestion. However, he had no such desire, and he dismissed it with a laugh. He was convinced, though, as he had supposed, that there was nothing of the instigator or messianic revolutionary behind this pure peaceful, and melancholy face. So, returning to the tribunal, Pilate announced to Jesus' accusers that he had acquitted him. The announcement was received with shouts of disappointed rage and the loud reiteration of the charges against him. It was a thoroughly Jewish spectacle. This fanatical mob had overcome the wishes and decisions of their foreign masters many times, by the sheer force of outcry and obstinacy. 
Pilate should have immediately released and protected Jesus. But he was a true son of the system in which he had been brought up. The political art of compromise and maneuver. Amid the cries with which they assailed his ears, he was glad to hear one that offered him an excuse to get rid of the whole business. They were shouting that Jesus had stirred up the people throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee unto this place. Luke 23, 5. It occurred to Pilate that Herod, the ruler of Galilee, was in town, and that he could get rid of this troublesome matter by handing it over to Herod. For it was a common practice in Roman law to transfer an accused criminal from the tribunal of the territory in which he was arrested to that of the territory in which he lived. Therefore, Pilate sent Jesus away in the hands of his bodyguard, and accompanied by his unwavering accusers to the palace of Herod. They found the ruler, who had come to Jerusalem to attend the feast, in the midst of his small-minded court of flatterers and festive companions, and surrounded by the bodyguard that he maintained in imitation of his foreign masters. He was delighted to see Jesus, whose fame had so long been ringing through the territory over which he ruled. Herod had only one thought in life, his own pleasure and amusement. He came up to the Passover merely for the sake of the excitement. The appearance of Jesus seemed to promise a new sensation, of which he and his court were often greatly in need, for he hoped to see Jesus work a miracle. Luke 23, 8. Herod was a man utterly incapable of taking a serious view of anything, and he even overlooked the business about which the Jews were so eager, for he began to pour out a flood of rambling questions and remarks without pausing for any reply. At last, however, he exhausted himself and waited for the response of Jesus, but he waited in vain, for Jesus did not give him one word of any kind. Luke 23, 9. Herod had forgotten the murder of John the Baptist, every impression being written as if on water in his characterless mind. But Jesus had not forgotten it. He felt that Herod should have been ashamed to look John the Baptist's friend in the face. He would not stoop to even speak to a man who could treat him as a mere wonder worker, who might purchase his judge's favor by exhibiting his skill. Jesus looked with sad shame on the one who had abused himself until there was no conscience or manliness left in him. But Herod was utterly incapable of feeling the annihilating force of such silent disdain. He and his men of war did not consider Jesus worthy of respect and consideration. They threw a white robe over his shoulders in imitation of that worn at Rome by candidates who were seeking support for political office, to indicate that he was a candidate for the Jewish throne. But it was one so ridiculous that it would be useless to treat Jesus with anything but contempt. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate in this way, and in this way Jesus retraced his weary steps to the Roman court of justice. Luke 23, 11. A course of procedure then ensued on the part of Pilate, by which he became an image of the opportunist that would be displayed to the centuries, in the light falling on him from Christ. It was evidently his duty, when Jesus returned from Herod, to immediately pronounce the sentence of acquittal. 
but instead of doing so, he resorted to what he thought would be more advantageous to him, and being hurried on from one false step to another, was finally hurled down the slope of complete betrayal to principle. He proposed to the Jews that since both he and Herod had found him innocent, he should scourge and then release him. Luke 23, 13-17 The scourging would be a gesture to appease their rage, and releasing Jesus would be a tribute to justice. The carrying out of this outrageous proposal was, however, interrupted by an incident that seemed to offer Pilate one more way of escape from his difficulty. It was the custom of the Roman governor on the Passover morning to release to the people any single prisoner they might desire. It was a privilege highly prized by the people of Jerusalem, for there were always plenty of prisoners in jail who, by rebellion against the detested foreign bondage, had made themselves the heroes of the multitude. At this stage of Jesus' trial, the mob of the city, pouring out from street and alley in an agitated manner, came streaming up the avenue to the front of the palace, shouting for this annual gift. The shouts of the crowd were for once welcome to Pilate, for he saw in them a loophole of escape from his disagreeable position. It turned out, however, to be a noose through which he was slipping his neck. Pilate offered the life of Jesus to the mob. They hesitated for a moment, but they had a favorite of their own. They wanted to free Barabbas, a noted leader of revolt against the Roman domination. Voices instantly began to whisper busily in their ears, putting every art of persuasion into motion in order to induce the people not to accept Jesus. The members of the Sanhedrin, despite the zeal they had manifested the hour before for law and order, did not hesitate to take the side of the champion of insurrection. The whispering voices succeeded only too well in poisoning the minds of the people who began to shout for their own hero, Barabbas. What then shall I do with Jesus? asked Pilate. He expected them to answer, Give us him too. But he was mistaken. The authorities had done their work successfully. The cry came from 10,000 throats, Let him be crucified! Matthew 27, 22. Like priests, like people, it was the acceptance by the nation of the decision of its leaders. Pilate, completely baffled, angrily asked, Why? What evil hath he done? Matthew 27, 23. But he had put the decision into their hands. They were now thoroughly fanaticized, and they yelled out, Away with him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Luke 23, 18-21 Pilate did not yet mean to sacrifice justice completely. He still had a move in reserve. But in the meantime, he sent Jesus away to be scourged, the usual preliminary to crucifixion. The soldiers took him to a room in their barracks, and they feasted their cruel instincts on his sufferings. We will not describe the shame and pain of this revolting punishment. What must it have been to him, with his honor and love for human nature, to be handled by those rough and rude men, and to look so closely 
at human nature's utmost brutality. The soldiers enjoyed their work and heaped insult upon cruelty. When the scourging was over, they set Jesus down on a seat, found an old rejected cloak, and flung it on his shoulders in derisive imitation of the royal purple. They thrust a reed into his hands for a scepter. They stripped some thorn twigs from a nearby bush, twisted them into the rough resemblance of a crown, and crushed down their piercing spikes upon his brow. Then, passing in front of him, each of them in turn bent their knee, while at the same time spitting in his face. Then, plucking the reed from his hand, they smote him with it over the head and face. Matthew 27, 27 to 31, and Mark 15, 15 to 20. At last, having satisfied their cruelty, they led him back to the court wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. The crowds raised shouts of mad laughter at the soldier's joke. Pilate thrust Jesus forward so that everyone could see him, and then he cried out, Behold the man! John 19.5 He meant that surely there was no use doing any more to him. He was not worth their effort. Could one so broken and wretched do any harm? How little he understood his own words. That behold the man is heard all over the world and draws the eyes of all generations to that marred countenance. Behold, as we look, the shame is gone. It has lifted off Jesus and has fallen on Pilate himself, on the soldiers, on the priests, and on the angry crowd. His bright glory has scorched away every speck of disgrace and covered the crown of thorns with a hundred points of flaming brightness. Pilate understood the spirit of the people he ruled just as poorly as he supposed that the sight of the misery and helplessness of Jesus would satisfy their thirst for vengeance. Their objection to him all along had been that one so poor and unambitious would claim to be their Messiah. And the sight of him now, scourged and scorned by the Roman soldiers, yet still claiming to be their king, raised their hate to madness, so that they cried louder than ever, Crucify him! Crucify him! John 19.6 Now, at last, they angrily expressed the real charge against him, which had been burning at the bottom of their hearts all along, and which they could no longer suppress. We have a law, they cried, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. John 19.7 These words struck a chord in Pilate's mind that the people had not thought of. In the ancient traditions of his native land, there were many legends of the sons of the gods, who in the days of old had walked the earth in humble appearance, so that they were indistinguishable from common men. It was dangerous to meet them, for an injury done to them might bring down on the offender the wrath of the gods, their fathers. Faith in these ancient myths had long died out, because no men were seen on earth who were so different from their neighbors as to require such an explanation. But in Jesus, Pilate had discerned an inexplainable something 
that affected him with an uncertain terror. Now the words of the mob, he made himself the son of God, John 19:7, came like a flash of lightning. They brought out of the recesses of his memory the old forgotten stories of his childhood. The words revived the heathen terror that formed the theme of some of the greatest Greek dramas, that of unknowingly committing a crime that might evoke the dire vengeance of heaven. Might not Jesus be the son of the Hebrew Jehovah, so his heathen mind reasoned, just as Castorus and Pollux were the sons of Jupiter? Pilate quickly took Jesus inside the palace again, and looking at him with new awe and curiosity, asked him where he was from. John 19.9 Jesus did not answer him one word. Pilate had not listened to him when he might have explained everything to him. Pilate had wronged his own sense of justice by scourging him. And if a man turns his back on Christ when he speaks... The hour will come when he will ask and receive no answer. The proud governor was both surprised and irritated. He demanded, Speakest thou not to me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? John 19.10 Jesus responded with the indescribable dignity of which the brutal shame of his torture had in no way robbed him. Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. John 9:11. Pilate had boasted of his power to do what he chose with the prisoner, but in reality he was very weak. He came forth from his private interview determined at once to release him. The Jews saw it in his face, and it made them bring out their last weapon that they had been keeping in reserve the whole time. They threatened to complain against him to the emperor. This was the meaning of the cry with which they interrupted his first words. If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. John 19.12 This had been in the minds of the people, and in the mind of Pilate all throughout the trial. It was this that made him so determined. There was nothing a Roman governor dreaded so much as a complaint against him sent by his subjects to the emperor. It was especially dangerous at this time, for the royal throne was occupied by a gruesome and suspicious tyrant who delighted in disgracing his own servants. He would erupt in a moment at the whisper of any of his inferiors favoring anyone else for the royal power. Pilate knew only too well that his administration could not hold up to inspection, for it had been cruel and corrupt in the extreme. Nothing is so certain to keep someone from doing the good that he wants to do as the evil of his past life. This was the blast of temptation that finally swept Pilate off his feet, just when he had made up his mind to obey his conscience. He was not a hero who would obey his convictions at any cost. He was a complete man of the world, and he saw at once that he must surrender Jesus to their will. However, Pilate was not only full of rage at being so completely repulsed, 
but he was also full of an overpowering religious dread. Calling for water, he washed his hands in the presence of the multitude and cried, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Matthew 27:24. Pilate washed his hands when he should have made use of them. Blood is not very easily washed off. The mob, now completely triumphant, scorned his misgivings, filling the air with the cry, His blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 27, 25. Pilate felt the insult sharply, and turning on them in his anger, determined that he too would have his triumph. Thrusting Jesus forward more prominently into view, he began to mock them by pretending to regard him as really their king, and asking, Shall I crucify your king? It was now their turn to feel the sting of mockery, and they cried out, We have no king but Caesar. John 19.15 What a confession from Jewish lips. It was the surrender of the freedom and the history of the nation. Pilate took them at their word and immediately handed Jesus over to be crucified. The Crucifixion The people had succeeded in taking their victim out of Pilate's unwilling hands, and they took Jesus and led him away. John 19.16 In time, they were able to gratify their hatred to the uttermost and they hurried him off to the place of execution with every demonstration of inhuman triumph. The actual executioners were the soldiers of the governor's guard. But in moral significance, the deed belonged entirely to the Jewish authorities. They could not leave it in charge of those who were given the task of carrying out the punishment. But with undignified eagerness, they led the procession themselves, in order to feast their vindictiveness on the sight of his sufferings. By this time, it must have been about ten o'clock in the morning. The crowd at the palace had been gradually increasing. As the fatal procession, headed by members of the Sanhedrin, passed on through the streets, it attracted great multitudes. It happened to be a Passover holiday, so there were thousands of people who were waiting for any excitement. All those especially who had been injected with the fanaticism of the authorities, poured forth to witness the execution. It was, therefore, through the midst of a multitude of cruel and unsympathetic onlookers that Jesus went to his death. The spot where he suffered cannot now be identified. It was outside the gates of the city and was undoubtedly the common place of execution. It is usually called Mount Calvary, but there is nothing in the Gospels to justify such a name, nor does there seem to be any hill in the neighborhood on which it could have taken place. The name Golgotha, place of a skull, Matthew 27.33, Mark 15.22, and John 19.17, might signify a skull-like cliff, but more probably refers to the dreadful relics of the tragedies happening there that might have been lying around. It was probably a wide open space in which a multitude of spectators could assemble. It appears to have been on the side of a much-traveled path, for in addition to the spectators, 
who were gathered around, there were others walking by who joined in mocking the sufferer. Crucifixion was an unspeakably horrible death. As Cicero, who was well acquainted with it, says, it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never, he adds, come near the body of a Roman citizen, nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. It was reserved for slaves and revolutionaries, whose end was meant to be marked with special infamy. Nothing could be more unnatural and revolting than to suspend a living man in such a position. The idea of crucifixion seems to have been suggested by the practice of nailing a vermin in a kind of revengeful amusement on some exposed place. If the end had come with the first strokes in the wounds, it would have still been a terrible death. But the victim usually lingered two or three days, with the burning pain of the nails in his hands and feet, the torture of burdened veins, and worst of all, his intolerable thirst, all constantly increasing. It was impossible to keep from moving the body so as to try to get relief from each new aspect of pain. Yet every movement brought new and excruciating agony. We gladly turn away from the gruesome sight now to think how Jesus triumphed over the shame, the cruelty, and the horror of it by his strength of soul, his submission to his Father's will, and his love. We consider how, just as the sunset with its crimson glory makes even the rancid pool of water blaze like a shield of gold, and how it drenches with brilliance the most contemptible object held up against its beams, Jesus converted the symbol of slavery and wickedness into a symbol for whatever is most pure and glorious in the world. The head hung free in crucifixion so that Jesus was able not only to see what was going on beneath him, but also to speak. He uttered seven sentences at intervals that have been preserved to us. They are seven windows by which we can still look into his very mind and heart and learn the impressions made on him by what was happening. They show that he retained intact the peace of mind and majesty that had characterized him throughout his trial, and demonstrated in their fullest exercise all the qualities that had already made his character illustrious. He triumphed over his sufferings not by the cold severity of a stoic, but by selfless love. When he was fainting beneath the burden of the cross in the Via della Rosa, he forgot his fatigue in his concern for the daughters of Jerusalem and their children. Luke 23, 28. When they were nailing him to the cross, he was absorbed in a prayer for his murderers. He quenched the pain of the first hours of crucifixion by his interest in the penitent thief. Luke 23, 39-43. And his care to provide a new home for his mother. John 19, 26-27. He never was more completely himself. The absolutely unselfish worker for others. It was indeed only through his love that he could be deeply wounded. His physical sufferings, though intense and prolonged, were not greater than those that have been endured by many other sufferers, unless the virtue of his being may have heightened them to a degree that is inconceivable to other people. He did not linger more than five hours. 
a space of time so much briefer than usual that the soldiers who were about to break his legs were surprised to find him already dead. John 19, 32-33 His worst sufferings were those of the mind. He, whose very life was love, who thirsted for love as the deer longs for the water brooks, Psalm 42, 1, was encircled with a sea of hatred and of dark, bitter, infernal rage that surged around him and flung its waves up around his cross. His soul was spotlessly pure. Holiness was its very life, but sin pressed itself against it, trying to force upon it its loathsome touch that his soul wanted desperately to avoid. The members of the Sanhedrin, or the council, took the lead in venting on him every possible expression of contempt and malicious hate, and the populace faithfully followed their example. John 11, 47-54 These were the men he had loved and still loved with an unquenchable affection, and they insulted, crushed, and trampled on his love. Through their lips, the evil one reiterated again and again the temptation by which, all his life, he had been assaulted, to save himself, and win the faith of the nation by some display of supernatural power made for his own advantage. That angry mass of human beings, whose faces, distorted with fury, glared upon him, was a perfect example of the wickedness of the human race. His eyes had to look down on it, seeing its callousness, its sadness, and its dishonor of God. Its exhibition of the shame of human nature was like a group of spears converged in his chest. There was a still more mysterious anguish. Not only did the world's sin press itself on his loving and holy soul in those near him, but it also came from afar, from the past, the distant, and the future, and converged on him. He was bearing the sin of the world and the consuming fire of God's nature, which is the reverse side of the light of his holiness and love, flamed forth against him to scorch it away. So it pleased the Lord to put him to grief. Isaiah 53.10 When he who knew no sin was made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 These were the sufferings that made the cross dreadful. After about two hours, Jesus withdrew himself completely from the outer world and turned his face toward the eternal world. At the same time, a strange darkness spread over the land. Matthew 27:45. Jerusalem trembled beneath a cloud whose murky shadows looked like a gathering doom. Golgotha was essentially deserted. Jesus hung on the cross for a long while, silent amid the darkness without and the darkness within, until at last, out of the depths of an anguish that human thought will never fathom, there issued the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1, and Matthew 27, 46. It was the moment when the soul of the sufferer touched the very bottom of his misery. However, the darkness passed from the landscape 
and the sun shone forth again. The Spirit of Christ, too, emerged from its eclipse. With the strength of victory won in the final struggle, he cried, It is finished. John 19.30 Then, with perfect serenity, he breathed out his life on a verse of a favorite psalm. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23.46 Quoting Psalm 31.5 The Resurrection and Ascension There was never an enterprise in the world that seemed more completely at an end than did that of Jesus on the last Old Testament Sabbath. Christianity died with Christ and was laid with him in the sepulchre. It is true that when we look back and see the stone rolled to the mouth of the tomb, we experience little emotion, for we are in the secret of providence and know what is going to happen. But when Jesus was buried... There was not a single human being who believed he would ever rise again before the day of the world's doom. The Jewish authorities were thoroughly satisfied of this. Death ends all controversies, and it had settled the one between him and them, triumphantly in their favor. He had put himself forward as their Messiah, but had hardly any of the marks that they had looked for in one with such claims. He had never received any important national recognition. His followers were few and uninfluential. His career had been short. He was in the grave. Nothing more was to be thought of him. The breakdown of the disciples had been complete. When he was arrested, they all forsook him and fled. Mark 14.50 It is true that Peter had followed him to the high priest's palace but only to fall more disgracefully than the rest. John followed him even to Golgotha, and may have hoped against hope that at the very last moment he would descend from the cross to ascend the messianic throne. But even the last moment went by, and nothing happened. What remained for them, except to return to their homes and their fishing, as disappointed men, who would be ridiculed for the rest of their lives for foolishly following a pretender, and who would be asked where the thrones were on which he had promised to seat them. Jesus had indeed foretold his sufferings, death and resurrection, but the disciples never understood these sayings. They forgot them or gave them an allegorical term, and when he was actually dead, these sayings did not provide them with any comfort whatsoever. The women came to the sepulchre on the first Christian Sabbath, not to see it empty, but to embalm his body for its long sleep. Mark 16.1 Mary ran to tell the disciples, not that he was risen, but that the body had been taken away and laid she knew not where. John 20, verse 2 When the women told the other disciples how he had met them, their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Luke 24, 11. Peter and John, as John himself informs us, knew not the scripture, that he should rise from the dead. John 20, verse 9. Could anything be more heartbreaking than the words of the two travelers to Emmaus? 
we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Luke 24, 21. When the disciples met together, they mourned and wept. Mark 16, 10. There were never people more utterly disappointed and dispirited. Now, though, we can be glad that they were so sad. They doubted so that we could believe. For how is it to be explained that a few days later these very people were full of confidence and joy? Their faith in Jesus had revived, and the enterprise of Christianity was again in motion with a far greater vitality than it had ever before possessed. They say that the reason for this was that Jesus had risen, and they had seen him. They tell us about their visits to the empty tomb and how he appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to the two on the road to Emmaus, to ten of them at once, to eleven of them at once, to James, to the five hundred, and so forth. For example, 1 Corinthians 15 3 to 8. Are these stories credible? They might not be if they stood alone, but the alleged resurrection of Christ was accompanied by the indisputable resurrection of Christianity. How is the latter to be accounted for except by the former? It might rightly be said that Jesus had filled their minds with royal dreams that he failed to realize. It could be said that once they had caught sight of such a magnificent career, they were unable to return to their fishing nets, and so invented this story in order to carry on the scheme on their own account. It could be said that they only imagined that they saw what they tell about the risen one. However, the remarkable thing is that when they resumed their faith in him, they were found to be no longer pursuing worldly goals but intensely spiritual ones. They were no longer expecting thrones, but persecution and death. Yet they addressed themselves to their new work with a breadth of intelligence, an intensity of devotion, and a faith in results that they had never shown before. As Christ rose from the dead in a transfigured body, so did Christianity. It had put off its carnality. What brought about this change? They say it was the resurrection and the sight of the risen Christ, but their testimony is not the proof that he rose. The incontestable proof is the change itself, the fact that they had suddenly become courageous, hopeful, believing, and wise. They suddenly had noble and reasonable views of the world's future and were equipped with sufficient resources to establish the church, convert the world, and build Christianity in its purity among men. Between the last Old Testament Sabbath and a few weeks later, when this astonishing change had undeniably taken place, some event must have happened that can be regarded as a sufficient cause for such a great effect. Only the resurrection answers the difficulties of the problem, and is therefore proved by a demonstration far more effective than any testimony could possibly be. It is a good thing that this event is capable of such a proof. For if Christ is not risen, then our faith is useless. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17. However, 
If he is risen, then all of his miraculous life becomes credible, for this was the greatest of all the miracles. His divine mission is demonstrated, for it must have been God who raised him up. And the most assuring glance that history offers is given into the realities of the eternal world. The risen Christ lingered on earth long enough to fully satisfy his adherents of the truth of his resurrection. They were not easily convinced. The apostles treated the reports of the holy women with scornful disbelief. Thomas doubted the testimony of the other apostles. Some of the 500 to whom Jesus appeared on a Galilean mountain doubted their own eyesight, and they only believed when they heard his voice. The loving patience with which he treated these doubters showed that, although his bodily appearance was somewhat changed, he was still the same in heart as ever. This was movingly shown, too, by the places that he visited in his glorified form. They were the old meeting places where he had prayed and preached, labored and suffered. The Galilean Mountain, the well-beloved Lake, the Mount of Olives, the village of Bethany, and above all, Jerusalem, the faithful city that had murdered her own son, but which he could not cease to love. There were obvious indications, though, that he no longer belonged to this lower world. There was a new reserve about his risen humanity. He forbade Mary to touch him when she would have kissed his feet. John twenty seventeen. He appeared in the midst of his own disciples with mysterious suddenness, and just as suddenly vanished out of their sight. Luke twenty four thirty one and thirty six, and John twenty nineteen. He was with them now only occasionally no longer allowing them the constant and familiar communion of former days. Then, at the end of forty days, when the purpose for which he had remained on earth was fully accomplished, and the apostles were ready in the power of their new joy to carry the message of his life and work to all nations, his glorified humanity was received up into that world to which it rightfully belonged. Mark sixteen nineteen. Luke 24:51 and Acts 1:9